Mark did a pretty good job today with two busted ribs. Don't you got to agree? Go take some morphine, man. We need you for the back half, all right? <laughs> Guys, good to see you today. We are, we are launching into something, and here's what I want to do. Guys, I want to help you to know Jesus more. Not a sound bite, not a favorite verse, not even just a favorite story. I want to help you. Who is he? You, you know, the New Testament is a record of Jesus, and the New Testament is where we get the Christmas story from. It's all about Jesus' birth. But you know, maybe it's just me, but I've always wanted to know kind of what's behind the curtain. I wanted to know what, what's, what's deeper there behind this Christmas story and behind Jesus, who is the center of it. And this is why I love the Old Testament. You know, so many people, when they think of the Bible, they think of the Old Testament as something that is just, it, it's this collection of weird laws that are hopelessly outdated, that feel irrelevant, that don't seem to apply anymore. And, you know, I've never found anything to be farther from the truth. Because for me, knowing the Old Testament helps me know Jesus more. It helps me know him deeper than in ways that if I just stuck to like the Christmas story itself. You, you know what I mean? So that's what I want to help you do today. I want to help you know, know the Christmas story more. I want to help you know him more. Now, the very first time in the Bible that you get introduced to Jesus, and I mean by name here, Okay, the very first time you get introduced to Jesus in the Bible, it's right at the beginning, kind of like a prologue in the first book of the New Testament. It's called a gospel, and it's called Matthew. And in one one, it starts with Jesus. Here's what it says: A book of the lineage of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of the son of Abraham. You know, great. Start with the genealogy, right? It's the first time you meet him. Now, now, don't don't brush past this. Look off the bat how Jesus' identity is rooted in Old Testament people. How was Jesus introduced for the very first time? Oh, you want to know who Jesus is? He's the son of Abraham. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, you, you've gotten a chance to see some of what that's about. Who else is Jesus? Maybe that's one, maybe that's not clicking. He's the son of David. Oh, because that clears it all up, Right? See, the Christmas story is basked in David. Now, if you don't know who we're talking about, we're talking about like David, King David from the Bible, David and Goliath David, shepherd boy David, whom God selected. He was the least of the least, and he made him king over Israel. And what the Christmas story revolves around is that this guy, Jesus, is the son of David. And knowing that seems to make all the difference for the author right here. Let me just show you a couple examples of how this works, all right? If you want to read the Christmas story and you've never done it, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, all right? And if you come along in Luke 2, it starts with that classic line that we've learned from the peanuts long ago. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree, right? That a census should be taken from the entire Roman world. So what happens? Joseph gets up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee. And he goes to where? Judea. To Bethlehem. What is Bethlehem? The town of David. 
because he belonged to the house and line of David. Why is this so significant that he is of the line of David? You know, later on, the angels appear, right? They'll appear and they say, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the town of? No, David. <laughs> A save. You guys got to watch your peanuts Christmas again here. Come on. Today, in the town of David, a Savior will be born to you. He is, let's see if you get this one right. Christ the Lord. Ah, close. Okay, half credit. Christ the Lord. You remember the three wise men, right? The magi, they're called. These, these witch kings from the east who come. They're reading the omens in the sky. They're, they're practicing astrology, and they read the signs even by their pagan arts, and they go, there's a king born in Israel. And it says they come to Jerusalem, and they come to King Herod, this puppet king, this regent king who's, who's trying to grab the throne for himself, and he goes, we've been reading the signs. We saw his star in the east. We know the king of the Jews has been born and we have come to worship him. Where do we go? Herod flips out. His court flips out. His, 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 his entourage flips out. They gather the sages. They gather the prophets. They gather all the wise men together and they go, okay, where is this king? Because we want him dead. This is what they come up with. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Why? Because out of you is coming the ruler. Out of where? The city of David. David stands behind Jesus. And for the New Testament writers to really know who Jesus is, is to back up and know something about this guy in the Old Testament called David. All right, question. I say Christ, what do you think? I think swear words, man. No, come on, seriously, like, what do you think? I say the word Christ, what comes to your head? Who comes to your, Jesus, right? Okay, I mean, this is kind of like, yeah, right? You say Christ, it's kind of like Jesus' last name, isn't it? At least that's how it feels. Now, if I talk to you, like, in person, so I, 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 like, I like to say Ben, and, and you, if you're in my family, you're going to think of a particular person in my family, my son. But if you say Gadini, what do you think? Well, either freak job or freaking awesome, one of the two. Um, but do you notice when you think, of, when, when you hear someone's last name, it tends to expand beyond a sole person. You tend to think of the family. Different people in the family, different connections. Sometimes it might go all the way back to the, to, to the oldest living family member, maybe a father, maybe a grandma or a grandfather, something like that. See, the Christmas story is basked in David because Jesus is basked in David, and it begins with something as simple as what we think of as Jesus' last name, Christ. David is a Christ. Yeah, you heard me, David is a Christ. Because a Christ is not really a name. It's a title. Here it is. Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Christ is a Greek word that just means anointed one. Messiah is a Hebrew word that just means 
anointed one. So when you say Jesus Christ, what you're actually doing is speaking English and Greek at the same time. You're saying Jesus the anointed one. If you say Jesus Messiah, you're speaking English and Hebrew at the same time. You follow? You're saying Jesus the anointed one. The label, the title that defines Jesus, that finds so much root in David is anointed one. What does it mean to be an anointed one? Well, David was an anointed one. Here's one passage. I'm going to skip that. Here's one passage. Comes out of 1 Samuel 16. We don't really know Dave. Now, now Israel is experimenting with, with this thing called king. And they got this guy, Saul, and, and it's just, it's a big time bust. So in the midst of this, God comes and he speaks to this prophet Samuel. And he says, my words, I'm picking the least of the least. And there's this little shepherd boy, this guy from this podunk kick town called Bethlehem. And he's brought before Samuel, and it says he was ruddy and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And, and the Lord says to Samuel, rise and, now what does it say, anoint him? Let's talk Hebrew. Rise and Messiah him. Let's talk Greek. Rise and Christ him. He is the one. So what Samuel will do? He anoints him, and here's how it works. Basically get like a big vat of olive oil. I should have, show, I should, have, should have so done this with like props and like a human guinea pig today, but you get a big vat of olive oil and they would stir in like cinnamon and myrrh and all these different fragrances and perfumes and spices and you would douse it on the person's head. Now, you ever change the oil and it feels like it's three days before you can get it off your hands? You, know, you ever cooking with oil and it's like nine washes later and maybe... Okay, imagine an age before the invention of soap and indoor plumbing. Because what they would do is they would take this oil and they would douse you in it. It would come into your hair. It would go into your beard. It would soak into your clothes. You would smell like this stuff for weeks. You would be covered, anointed, and he anoints him in the presence of his brothers. And it says, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came on him. Now, there's nothing magical about this oil. It's not like it's, ooh, you know, Holy Ghost oil or something like that. It's just oil. But it's the purpose for which they are doing it. Because see, to anoint someone or something is ultimately to set it apart for a special purpose. Priests in the Old Testament would be anointed. Prophets on occasion more common than not, like the temple and, and the stuff that was in it. But at the top of the roost, ones that would be anointed were kings. Kings would be anointed. David is anointed. Later it'll say, actually, in a little town um, next to Hebron, uh, or next to Bethlehem called Hebron, that David would actually be anointed king. So 1952 basketball state champions and the place of David. Am I right? And he's anointed there as king. He is set apart for a special purpose. Now, here's what I want you to do. There's these Bibles under your chairs, and I want you to pull it out, and I just want you to dig into something with me. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't know where that is, just a table of contents. My numbers won't be the same as yours, page numbers. 
2 Samuel 7, well, 2 Samuel really is about David. In 2 Samuel 7 is this absolutely pivotal chapter that will forever define Israel and the people of God forever after. Now, here's what it says. Verse 1. It says, after the king was settled in his, and you probably have palace, right? Okay. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies, he sent to Nathan, he said, excuse me, to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God, you know, the the ark of the covenant, raiders of the lost ark, while the ark of God is, is rotting out in a 400-year-old, weather-beaten, shabby, moldy, bug-infested tent. All right? And Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is with you. Guys, do you ever have those moments where you actually realize how much God has done for you? Sometimes it just comes in a flash, just a moment. But you have like this this awakening. It's almost like an epiphany of what God has done for you. And you're looking at the priority you're giving him. And it hits you. You Know what I mean? You ever had this with anyone? You realize how much someone has done for you in your life. And it finally hits you how you've taken and taken and taken and enjoyed what's come from their hand and haven't really given them more than, you know, second thought. You have, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what's going on here with David. God's delivered him from his enemies. God has given him a throne. God has plucked him out of being a nobody from nowhere. He says, I choose you. And here's David, and he's living, and it says palace, right? Probably better translated house. Because if you miss this, you miss the pun of what's going to happen. He's sitting in there in this house, and it's not just any house. It's a, I mean, it's opulent. It's a mansion. It's why it takes some liberty and translates it palace. He's like, I'm living in this amazing house, and God is out there rotten in a tent. I got to do something about this. And the story goes on. It says, that night, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and, and, and God says, go tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house for me? I've not dwelt in the house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt. I've been moving to place to place in a tent because I'm not the kind of God that wants to be trapped in a house. I'm not the kind of God that wants to be stuck in four walls. I'm not a God who wants to be found over there. I'm a God who is on the move. And I'm a God who's going to stay on the move. You're going to build a house for me? Verse 7, wherever I've moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of them, why don't you build me a nice house? that's not the kind of God he is. And he says, tell my servant David, I took you from nothing, from the pasture, from tending flocks, and I appointed you ruler over my people. 
been with you wherever you've gone, even when it didn't seem like it. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you, even when it looked like they would win. Now I'm going to make your name great, like the names of the greatest people on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and plant them so they can have a home and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now here, this next line is the hinge. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David, you think you're going to be a, build a house for me? Uh-uh. David, I'm going to build a house for you. Have you ever had those moments where you have realized what God has done for you? And you wanted to do something for him. Maybe something great. Maybe something to show your heart. But you know what I mean? You wanted to do something for him. You know what God reminds me of? like a parent in a house of six-year-olds who at Christmas time at their school go to one of these little craft fairs where you give them a dollar and they buy some like cheap, junky, weak little ornament or homemade crafted kind of thing and you're like, thanks. Parents, we've been there. You know what I mean? Like really, what are you going to give God? He's God. God is like, David, what, you're going to build a house for me? Okay, thanks. That's not the kind of God he is. He's not, looking for, he's not looking for glory. He doesn't have an ego. He's not looking for stuff. He loves you. And the kind of God we see pictured here is a God who wants to give to you. I mean, he does what a good parent does. Oh, thank you. I, 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 I know your heart and I know your intention. You think you're going to build a house for me? Just wait and see what I'm going to do for you. He goes on and he starts saying things. He starts listing them off. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, in other words, when you died, I will raise, you up. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one to build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Keep that in mind. Someone saw Sandlot out there. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by human beings, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Sound familiar? Think the Jesus crucifixion story. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed him from before you. Here it is. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne, David, will be established forever. Here is this little shepherd boy that God just chooses and God blesses. He pours it on. And David has this moment and he realizes and he goes, I want to do something great for you, God. And it's like God going, 
You ain't seen nothing yet. This, this is just the beginning. Don't build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you, a line, a lineage, a genealogy, a never-ending run of people from your line. And to them, I will give my blessing. To them, I will give you a throne. To them, I will give a kingdom that will never end. And how does Matthew 1, 1 begin? The lineage of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Because for those writers, that Jesus was the son of David meant everything. Because here is finally one who might take the throne the way it's supposed to be. Here is finally one who has come to reign in peace and mercy. In the Old Testament, it goes wild with this, guys. The prophets start writing about this, dreaming about this, looking forward to what this day might be like. I'm going to skip this over. Look from Isaiah 9. Here's how it begins. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It goes on to talk about how he has increased their joy. He's given his protection. Then he says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Where are they getting this from? A promise to David. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. See, the promise of the Gospels, the promise of Christmas is this. God has sent a king. Now, we're democracy folks. We're Americans. We hate kings, right? You know, a good king beats a good democracy any day. No more bureaucracy. It's just that a bad king is so much worse than a bad democracy any day. So as a country, we split the middle, right? See, you want a good king. Because a good king means justice. Because that's what kings do. A good king means goodness and mercy because that's what good kings do. A good king means prosperity and what the Hebrews would call shalom, peace, because that's what a good king does. And the hope that Christmas was that those who are living in gloom, those who are living in distress might finally be tasting the end of that promise, the answer to what God has said. A son of David has come. A king. 
Look at how the same prophet Isaiah will picture him. Just read it. You want a king like that? Or like that? Look at how it pictures what life will be like under his reign. The hope of what's to come and what he'll bring. You want something like that. Because all of this is what's nestled in to this son of David named Jesus. All of this is what stands behind him. All of this is what would come to mind when the angels would proclaim, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy because today in the town of David, a Savior is born. This is who Jesus is and what he brings. We don't have that yet, do we? But that doesn't mean it's not coming. I think of what it must have been like for those people living in the worst of times centuries after David and centuries before Christ. Wondering if God was good for his word then. See, this Christmas season, what we do is we remember that God has made a promise that Christ has come and that Christ will come again. That whatever the darkness, the light shines in it, and the day will come when the darkness cannot overcome it. That's what all of this is about. So guys, I want to invite you to get on your feet. Band is going to come forward. We're going to close with a, another time of worship. Before we do, that prophecy from Isaiah 11, that picture of Jesus and who he is and what he brings, I want you to put it on your lips here with me today. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox.
The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea.